0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The spike in COVID cases has renewed concern across the state. There are calls to tighten up restrictions on bars and on large gatherings and do a better job with wearing masks. Lieutenant Governor Josh Green joins us live this morning. Hi there. Hey, hello. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, you, you've made it no secret. You know, early on, you just said we need to have a cadre of these contract tracers you know, waiting in the wings in case we see the numbers, you know, go up. We don't want it to get away from us.
1: We're in big trouble, big big trouble. We have uh, 124 cases today, up from 109 yesterday, and we have an inadequate uh, number of tracers. I have intel that shows that we are well under 100, and we need 400 based on everybody's understanding. That's uh, CDC said uh, 30 per hundred thousand. So anybody who tells you otherwise is full of you know what.
0: Well, now, we have done a better job, though, of training people. Uh, we understand that we've trained, like, you know, more than 400 folks, and we're told that the Department of Health has a number of staff that they can step up uh, to get in place.
1: Let, let me pause you there. What good is training people if they're not hired and working? And what good is updating, upgrading staff if they're already busy with their jobs? It's totally, total misdirection if we don't get these people up and on the job. I had frantic calls last night as late as midnight individuals who are working on the project that they're overwhelmed frantic calls and it's dangerous this number of cases we now have last well, yesterday it was 624 active cases that number is higher now and there are cases beyond that as you know because we can only capture so many cases with tests which have been limited we're in big trouble Catherine I mean really big trouble and they have to listen we had to ask for it the Senate asked for it the House We asked for 400 full-time people, and we're not just asking for today. We're asking for tomorrow and next week because, number one, this is a -a seven-day-a-week enterprise, of course. Number two, the virus never sleeps. Three, it's surging like mad. Four, we have other expectations for the state, like will we be able to open schools? Will we be able to trace outbreaks at large high schools and middle schools and, and elementary schools? And then what are we going to do when or if we ever bring back uh, travel? So it's a colossal mistake right, to, right now not to get to these larger numbers, and I'm not going to relent until I see those people. And honestly, please don't let the Department of Health off the hook when you're on the phone with them because right. it has to happen.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I wish I were a fly on the wall when you folks are in the room talking about this issue. Uh, and I know uh, D- Dr. Sarah Park and uh, Bruce Anderson, you know, uh, have said at those news conferences that they believe – that uh, that we're doing okay It's both okay uh... you know i know we we have talked to a number of of uh... mayors this week uh, post uh, douglas and they've expressed some concern about the uh, opening of school uh... which there'll be a decision today by the school board and also the relaxation of the travel restrictions in another month or so but it certainly is not a good sign uh, and the mayors are, are, you know, not all on the same page about um, what the administration's doing or, or not doing.
1: Right. So, you know, that is one of the challenges which we can deal with, which is the mayors are, of course, the de facto governors of their counties, respectively. They, you know, they are very close to the people, and that's excellent. That's the way it should be. Uh, and everyone is getting quickly on the same page for at least not having gatherings. Social gatherings of greater than 10. Very important. That will help. Uh what they aren't able to do is press the Department of Health for extra resources. Only the governor can do that or me or General Hara and, and the attorney general. The uh, the real deal here is that you can hear all you want, that they are getting ready or training people. But if they are not full-time hires, they're only um, dabbling with the great challenge. And everything emanates from some of these capacity questions. They may say it's not the whole game, and it's not the whole game. Of course, people have to socially distance and be responsible, and we have to stop beach park parties and so on. However, the only way you're going to have any clue of where to put extra resources and whether or not we can do other things like education is, is to have a full and comprehensive assessment day in, day out that doesn't exhaust their staff of where these cases are. I know it sounds a little bit like a broken record, but there are some additional nuances here. If we don't do that, everything else will suffer because if we finally throw our hands up and say we just can't keep up with the cases like it's been done in California, in New York, in other states like Arizona or Florida, then all you can do is react at the hospital and healthcare level. That's all. And we know what that means, that we know that means big surges, overwhelming our intensive care unit beds, of which we only have 244, and fatalities. I'm happy to break the numbers also out for you what this looks like, in the coming month uh if you want because it's that dire
0: well, well i know uh, mayor kawakami expressed some concern because he said you know half their ventilators are already in use for non-covid cases and he doesn't like the idea that you know we're going to see a rise and not have enough ventilators to help people I- I- in the hospitals um yep. and i know there, there's the issue of triggers everybody you know the mayor caldwell is asking you know i you know give me some triggers so we know you know when to roll the bars back or or when to to just tighten up on crowds and that kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, it's helpful, um, but and I'm glad for that. Kirk is pretty right. Uh, having let me say something good about both mayors. Okay, so we have to have triggers, but look at where we were. If let me just flip through my notes. On July 21st, randomly picked out the day. Okay, that day we had 25 cases. Today we had. I mean, we have 124 cases. So. Triggers, we're flying past any trigger you can imagine. Now, there could be other triggers for hospitals and so on. Mayor Kawakami is very smart because he knows that he only has, I think it's like uh, nine ventilators, I'm sorry, uh, nine intensive care unit beds and 15 ventilators total, total, in the whole uh, county, which means what we often see historically, and I can say this as a practicing physician on a neighbor island, we often have to transfer critically ill patients to Oahu, which is okay. We accept that, but... In the case of an infectious disease which can surge, it can happen so fast. A couple important things for people to hear and remember, we are getting about 11% of all individuals that we confirm as cases in the hospital. So if we have 100 cases uh, today, in the next couple weeks, 11 of these individuals are going to be in the hospital. It's been rock solid data. And for every 72 people that get diagnosed in the state of Hawaii with a test, we've had one fatality. And we have had now over a thousand cases in this month. A thousand cases this month. We only had 850 cases for the entire five months beforehand. So this month, July, which ends, I guess, tomorrow, this month we had five times the entire experience before. Right.
0: Not, ending, we can, well. Not right. ending well. Right. And well.
1: if we go to the next, the next level. So as far as triggers go, if this month of a thousand becomes 2,500, tells you several things. One that 275 people will need hospitalization next month. And we only have 244 intensive care unit beds, so hopefully they'll be taken care of in less intense beds. But certainly the neighbor islands will, will experience, if they have any surge, a shortage of health care. So these are some very real problems, and I, I can't express directly enough how we have to have each and every weapon in our arsenal activated fully. We, of course, have to have the right policies, which you're – discussing uh, more with the mayors which is excellent they're doing smart things to press the governor for some restrictions on high-risk activities of course right the, the main ones being you know large social gatherings that's by far right. the worst right?
0: and I, I know you were complimentary to mayor kirk caldwell you were i think bashing him on one of the tv shows about this move to uh, open up or encourage people to go down to chinatown and waikiki uh and i know he's trying to help the businesses there but you just expressed some concern that this was not a good idea
1: well, the reason why is what you're seeing now. You know, opening up bars um, was dangerous, but they've done a good job to damp things down. But opening up streets, open up entire streets and have Cala Avenue having large clusters of people, and then a street fair or festival to open up and get people mingling for restaurant purposes, that's one of the reasons, just one of them, of why we're having – this surge of 1,100 now is what it's going to look like for July.
0: Okay, and I know Thank the mayor you. just expressed some concern that people, you know, try and keep their distance, and I, I, don't, I don't believe they have uh, had that Waikiki uh, uh, closure on for this weekend. They didn't have it on because of the hurricane.
1: Well, they, well they're pulling back, but here's, right. the, here's the point. The whole state's going to close down again. You want the highlight? Okay. The whole state's going to close down again completely if we go to a place where we're getting a couple hundred cases a day. And that is the worst thing for businesses, the worst thing for people. They're going to rebel. Okay. So that's, we, that's where this heads if we don't get this under control.
0: We've got less than a minute. Any final thoughts?
1: Well, my first thoughts were all the, the ones you <laughs> should treat as final thoughts, which is we have to contact trace the heck out of this thing. We have to test everybody that we can, and we have to socially distance uh, well with masks on. I mean, that's really where it comes down to. So at least the, everyone's agreeing right now that any gatherings of more than 10 are a mistake. It should only be your household folks. It should not be anyone else, at least for a couple of weeks. You'll get this guidance from the governor and me and others, but everyone has to realize that we are really at the precipice of, of a big, big surge. And the only way to solve that will be a massive lockdown again, unless we can contact trace and test everybody.
2: All right.
0: Well, thank you so much, Lieutenant Governor. We appreciate your time.
1: You bet. Take
0: care. That was Lieutenant Governor Josh Green talking about the latest spike in COVID cases. We'll have more about contact tracing coming up. But first, we go to the BBC for the latest pandemic news.
3: This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Thursday, the 30th of July. I'm Oliver Conway. The US economy suffers its worst drop on record. England has the most excess deaths in Europe. And snooker brings back spectators indoors. The dire economic impact of the pandemic is becoming clearer, with the US contracting by almost 10% in the second quarter of the year. The annual rate of decline at nearly 33% is the sharpest since records began. From New York, Samira Hussain reports.
0: Nearly every corner of the
4: economy was hammered, including business investment, trade, and most importantly, consumer spending, which accounts for roughly two-thirds of America's gross domestic product.
0: And in the past few weeks, the rise in virus cases has forced some U.S. states to either pause or roll back plans to reopen. This has economists worried. The sharp rebound many expected in the second half of the year may not happen.
3: The German economy has also been badly hit, shrinking by more than 10% in the second quarter. The fall is the biggest in half a century. The details from Andrew Walker. The country's statistics office said that in the second quarter of the year, there was a massive slump in investment in equipment and machinery, in household spending and in exports and imports. As a leading exporter of goods, Germany has been very exposed to the disruption of international trade caused by the health crisis the economy had already declined by 2% in the previous quarter. In normal circumstances, that would have been considered a very sharp fall, but it has been overshadowed by the deep contraction that's followed. Two of Europe's leading car makers have, meanwhile, reported massive losses for the first half of the year when the lockdown brought much of the industry to a standstill. The French manufacturer Renault saw its sales fall by more than a third, leading to a record loss of almost $9 billion. The German firm Volkswagen saw sales drop by 27%, resulting in a net loss of more than a billion dollars. England had the highest levels of excess deaths in Europe from the end of February to mid-June, according to a comparative study by Britain's official independent statistics agency. Naomi Grimley reports. This will ignite the debate about the policy decisions made, including not locking down earlier and the failure to stop the virus getting into care homes. But there are other reasons England was badly hit, not least the size of London and its position in the world as a global travel hub. Next to some coronavirus research, and it seems new mothers with COVID-19 can breastfeed without passing on the virus to their baby. That's the finding of a study of 220 women and their babies that took place in New York. Dr Christine Salvatore is a paediatric infectious disease specialist who led the investigation.
0: We were recommending very strict precautions. Even when the moms were breastfeeding direct contact skin to skin, they had to clean their breasts first, their hands, and wearing a mask all the time. I had very few that did not want to do that. And I think that was the major reason. And they did that for 14 days. And at that time, we said the baby is negative three times. You are without symptoms at this point. You can remove that mask. And that's why I think none of the babies got infected, really.
3: The World Health Organization has warned that spikes in coronavirus infections in some countries could be driven partly by young people letting their guard down. The WHO boss, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, said young people were not invincible. Tens of thousands of people in Vietnam have been told to contact disease control centres as the country battles its first outbreak in more than three months. The health ministry sent text messages urging anyone who visited the coastal resort of Da Nang from the beginning of July to come forward. The capital, Hanoi, has banned large gatherings and closed bars. This man said he was taking precautions. I'm quite scared of contracting the virus, so I'm taking preventative measures seriously, washing my hands regularly and wearing a mask all the time. Sporting events continue to adapt to the challenges of the pandemic. The World Snooker Championship begins here in England on Friday and spectators will be allowed indoors for the first time since the lockdown. Around 300 people will be able to watch the action in the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield. However, five-time world champion Ronnie O'Sullivan thinks it may be too soon. I'd feel a bit strange walking in a room with 10 people that I don't know. Maybe it's just... They have to start doing a a test on crowds at some point, and I've heard people say, you know, we're treating the snooker event a little bit like lab rats in a way.
5: (laughs) Got to start somewhere. Start with snooker players.
3: Ronnie O'Sullivan, and that's the latest coronavirus global update.
1: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Mānoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists
0: hi i'm linda carroll author of love cycles next time on new dimensions i'll be talking about a new point of view of lasting love sunday morning at 11. earlier in the hour we heard from the lieutenant governor about his fears over the staffing of contact tracers the health department says it does have the ability to tap about 179 of its personnel to help in this effort And the partnership with the University of Hawaii has graduated 450 people from its training program. It is part of a $2 million federal grant between the State Health Department and UH. Take a listen to a training clip that simulates the type of interaction that will occur if a contact tracer were to call you. Hello.
6: Hello, is this Mr. Jared Young? Yes, it is. Hello, Mr. Young. This is Michelle Bray calling from the Department of Health.
7: Oh, hi.
6: Hi, good morning. How are you doing today?
7: I'm, I'm fine.
6: Good to hear. I'm calling today to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 coronavirus. So as a part of an investigation into a case of COVID-19, we are following up. You may have been exposed to COVID-19. We'd like to collect additional information to understand your risk.
7: Uh, yeah, no, sure.
1: Whatever, whatever needs to be done.
6: Thank you. So have you been feeling good? Can you tell me how you're feeling right now?
1: Right now, I feel fine. I feel uh, normal.
6: Any fever? No. How about shortness of breath? No. Cough?
1: Coughing? No.
6: Very good to hear. Well, since you have been exposed to someone with COVID-19, what that means is that we'll need to have you in quarantine for 14 days.
5: 14 days?
6: Yes, 14 days. This means that you will need to stay in your home for the next 14 days because you were exposed to someone. Is there someone, a family member or a friend that can provide you with food or medications while you're in quarantine for those 14 days?
1: Yeah, um, no, I have my family, my friends. I'm, yeah, I can, I can do this.
0: Well, that was part of a clip of a training video for contact tracers, and what seems like a simple interaction really takes a lot of empathy and understanding of health. There's an effort to recruit more uh, people interested in becoming contact tracers, particularly from the neighbor islands. Here's Amy Grace of the you Healthy Hawaii initiative.
2: We have, thankfully, a lot of people from the community that have already applied. Nearly 2,500 people from the community have applied to one of the three arms of our program, Again, there's two tracks within the contact tracing arms of the program, and then we have a community health worker arm that aims to train 100 community health workers over the next year. So enrollment for the community health worker program has not yet begun, and we are continuing to recruit for track two, which is the six-week contact tracing training program. All of these programs are available online and statewide. At this point, we do have a number of applicants, but we are particularly looking for those for contact tracing that are from neighbor islands, that are from communities that are at high risk, for example, Pacific Islanders, and those that can work full time for the Department of Health for a short-term period of up to three months, if needed upon completion of the training. I will say that we're not able to take everyone that applies, but we are, um, again, looking for those people in those specific groups in particular, and we are limiting our cohort size going forward to about 30 to 35 people in each of the six week cohort. So how does
0: this work for the neighbor islands?
2: So all of these programs are offered online and they're statewide. So track one was led by our School of Nursing and Dental Hygiene at UH Manoa. Track two is led by UH West Oahu. And both programs, again, are seeking neighbor island enrollees. We are seeking to have at least um, similar representation to the population in the state from the different counties. I'll mention that the requirements for the track two training are at least a bachelor's degree, but the requirement for the community health worker training is a high school degree or a GED. At this point, we are slightly underrepresented on Maui, but I don't expect that to be the case in our next cohort. These are synchronous trainings and live. So track one training again is already over, but there was a cohort that was going through together and there was also simulation sessions with uh, real life actors from UH Mānoa who were simulating being patients. And uh, the students were working with them to try to practice potential contact tracing skills. As we've all been seeing in the news, contact tracing is actually pretty complicated. And there are a number of issues regarding making sure people feel comfortable uh, opening up with some of those specific details. Uh, Track two is also synchronous online. And so the classes, there's two different classes involved with track two. They are approximately from 10 a.m to 1 p.m. on Mondays and Tuesdays, and then 9 to 10 a.m., sorry, 9 to 10.30 a.m., and 1 to 2.30 p.m. on Thursdays and Fridays. So, you know, there's a number of different contact tracing training programs out there. For example, a number of people talk about the Johns Hopkins course, or uh, the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, or ASTHO, has an online trailing, training available. Our trainings were put together in close partnership with Dr. Sarah Park and her team, and they represent a high-level training that we feel is appropriate to have the highest standard of care here in Hawaii. We feel strongly that people do need some degree of clinical skills to be able to assess risk of patients, to be able to listen for uh, heavy breathing, or to be able to be able to assign quarantine. And so, some of those skills are already present in those that are clinical healthcare professionals and that's why they're eligible for the one-and-a-half-day accelerated training. And then those are some of the skills that we are teaching in Track 2 in advance of taking the accelerated course.
0: That was the University of Hawaii's Amy Grace. She's the director of the U Healthy Hawaii Initiative and was talking about the program to train more contact tracers. A new class just actually started on Monday this week. Uh, The state is encouraging residents of the neighbor islands and those of Pacific Island ancestry to apply for the positions. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our reality check today is a sidebar story to the recent arrest of a Honolulu businessman. Honolulu civil beat Nick Ruby joins us this morning. Hi, Nick.
7: Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on today.
0: Yeah, so you've been digging through some uh, financial records, huh?
7: (laughs) Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, that's part of the day job, uh, as it were, for reporters. But uh, in this case, what I wanted to do is I wanted to uh, take a look at some uh, political uh, records and political fundraising records. Um, in relation to Michael Miski, who, of course, was the businessman you referenced earlier, who was indicted recently along with a number of uh, alleged cohorts for running um, what the feds say was a criminal enterprise that was mob-like in and, and, and some instances. Well, uh, Michael Miski uh, owned a bar and uh, a nightclub in downtown Honolulu, the M nightclub, Uh, that was pretty well known um, in the local press for being sort of this den of debauchery and violence. Uh, Miski, of course, uh, had been arrested a couple of times along with some of the other people who were named in the indictment for assaulting uh, individuals, uh, most notably an NFL football player in 2013. But, you know, despite this reputation, uh, which again was well known, A number of high-profile politicians had held fundraisers there uh, over the years, including um, David Ige, uh, Hawaii's governor, Uh, he held a fundraiser there when he was a state senator, and not long after those assaults had occurred, Um, and uh, state senator Donna mercado Kim, who used to be senate president, uh, again, she's a very powerful person in Hawaii politics, and she had actually held a couple of fundraisers at that nightclub and had taken money from uh, Michael Miske over the years uh, in her various attempts to win re-election to the Senate uh, or move up to Congress.
0: And I know with these fundraisers, uh, you know, that that is a, a, a kind of a strategic location because it's right down there downtown, not too far from the state capitol. And, you know, we know how these fundraisers go, right? Everybody then walks over from the capitol over to to a nearby joint for their fundraiser <laughs> during session sometimes. Sure. <laughs>
7: Sure, yeah, you would think that. But when you actually look at the number of fundraisers that were held at the M. Night Club, um, the, the, the club is in a convenient location. It's not far from the state capitol. It's not far from Honolulu Halle. Uh, it's near the business district, right? But when you look at the uh, number of politicians who actually held fundraisers there over the years, it's not a lot. I mean, we're talking about a handful of individuals. It's, it's nowhere near compared to the place, say, like, Pacific Club, or the Mandalay Restaurant, or the Plaza Club, or Cafe Julia, um, which, when you look at the fundraiser notices that are posted on the State Campaign Spending Commission website, they have dozens and dozens of fundraisers there. Um, another notable aspect of, of, of the fundraisers that were held at that nightclub is that I didn't find any sort of rental fees uh, that were paid to To the nightclub now. Of course, there were a few expenses here and there for uh, food and beverages, but um, there weren't uh, any any sort of uh, expenses that I could find, at least in my review of the records, that indicated that the entire place was rented out.
0: Yeah, that would be interesting because you're kind of wondering, yeah, well, what what do they normally charge, uh, you know, for the average Joe, and did these lawmakers get a a break on that, or you know, how is that declared on campaign spending? So. Yeah, it's all, all all pretty interesting.
7: Right, right. Well, and I think you know what, what what's important to sort of note with this story too is um, that you know Michael Misky is not uh, somebody who didn't have interactions with government and government officials, right? Um, There have been questions of favoritism that have been brought up with him in the past. As I noted in the article, uh, there there was an incident he was involved in with a um, tree out in Hawaii Kai. Yes, uh, the famous tree. And and the lighting of that tree. Yes, the famous Hawaii Kai tree. Um, And uh, City Councilman Trevor Ozawa had actually introduced a bill um, to help. Uh, Misky in this controversial tree lighting. Now, it's a very convoluted, complicated story, and I encourage all the listeners to go read read about it on Civil Beat, uh, but ultimately, there were a lot of questions raised about whether uh, Michael Misky was getting special treatment from this Honolulu City Council member who had, of course, held a fundraiser at his event. Now, Trevor Ozau, I spoke to him, said he didn't really know much about Misky's background, Um, and said that there was absolutely no favoritism at all involved in his interactions with uh, MISCI or uh, the Honolulu
0: City government at that time. It is a very interesting story, and again, yeah, readers should uh, definitely head to your website uh, to find out more. But thanks so much, Nick.
7: Hey, thanks for having me on, Catherine. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. That was reporter Nick Ruby with today's Reality
3: Check.
1: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with an extension of 30 Americans, works by 30 contemporary artists connected through their African-American cultural history. HonoluluMuseum.org Tune in to HPR One Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note virtually live. This week, it's Mike Love and the Full Circle, whose conscious and socially pertinent music will both uplift and inspire during these chaotic times. And it's all recorded live on the Blue Note Hawaii stage. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on the HPR mobile app.
0: Garden Isle in the throes of COVID-19. Earlier this week, uh, Mayor Derek Kawakami expressed concern over the spike in cases and limited ventilators on the island, and he also was concerned about teachers' worries about getting back to school safely. HBR's Kuve Hirishi joins us
4: with the snapshot from the community there. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Kauai really was at the forefront, I want to say, of reopening. You know, they were uh, the first county to start to reopen uh, in late May before everyone else. And so you kind of get this idea that, you know, reopening was a, a proactive approach to kind of trying to get COVID-19 under control on the Garden Isle. Um, But with reopening, you know, they really didn't have any issues until recently. This past weekend, folks have heard about a massive gathering at Polihale over on the west side of the island. More than a thousand, hundreds of people out there camping. According to the State uh, Department of Land and Natural Resources, no social distancing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Masks were were hard to find. They did anticipate, the state had anticipated, that there would be uh, some use of the park. It's a popular camping spot and folks trying to get out, eager to get out of their homes. Uh, They had 80 permits uh, that were actually issued. So they did expect, okay, 80 families. But what they got was a lot more, and and they saw it on social media, and that really pushed the state to close down uh, Polihale State Park indefinitely this week. And so when we talk about reinstating some of the restrictions that we've been seeing statewide, Kauai recently had this uh, sort of experience in dealing with that.
0: Right, and we should say that I think uh, Kawakami was actually uh, at the forefront, right? He was— Clamping down early with the curfews. He's
4: he's, uh, had a very uh, protective approach, I'd say, to making sure his community, you know, he's in touch with what's going on in the community. And, you know, he said there's no tourists to blame in this one. This was residents and uh, they're rule breakers, but we want to make this, you know, we want to fix this. So Kauai has has done relatively well compared to the other counties in containing COVID. They currently have four active cases, but a total of 47 cases, which is uh, the only county right now in the double digits, right? Maui and Hawaii County, both uh, beyond that 100 cases threshold so far. Oahu, <laughs> Honolulu County with uh, 1500 more than 1,500 cases. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't concerns. As you mentioned, the schools reopening is something that's on the minds, of a lot of residents. I spoke to Waimea resident Kavai Sanborn who's a single mother and she says the recent spike in COVID-19 cases statewide is sort of uh, having her question what to do with her child. She's got a 12-year-old uh, daughter who is getting ready to enter the seventh grade at Waimea Middle and they're doing a hybrid right three days of distance learning two days in person but she says she doesn't want her her daughter in school for those two in-person days she's not going to school rihanna is not going to school she's going to only do the distance learning the three times a week and that's it i'm not going to let her go back on campus at least
1: for the first semester to see how it goes you know if there's no no chances of spread And if the Kiki are, you know, my cutie in school, then maybe I'll consider having
7: her return second semester, maybe.
1: But then, you know, I
7: don't even know either because it's like, well, if the second string of kids show up and one of them have it, you know what I mean? I don't even know what to do. I think most of America don't know what to do.
4: <laughs> you uh-huh. can really feel that yes. frustration, hear the frustration in her voice. And I think that is a sentiment that's echoed uh, by, by all involved or have uh, some interaction with the education system and what's going to happen next there. But as we mentioned earlier, you know, Kauai's approach has been very uh, proactive. They were the first to implement that curfew early on, uh, first to begin reopening with the four-day work weeks for the county. And they also partnered with the short-term rental platforms uh, to help with enforcement of that of the visitor quarantine. So, you know, it, it it's interesting to see how things are evolving for them because you think whatever's happening there might start to happen in other counties
0: right and i know with the relaxation of the inter-island travel Mm. and there's like calls like oh do we close it up again
4: exactly and kawakami i know has in the past you know kind of nodded in that in that direction it's not something he's entirely opposed to uh we heard from hawaii county mayor saying um, harry kim saying i know we we're good we don't want to close that back up Uh, so different approaches uh, but from residents that I've spoken to uh, they are noticing more of the neighbor Island residents coming in whether it's family colleagues or friends deciding to take a break on Kauai I spoke to uh, Waipa resident Joel guy who says he's been monitoring he and his team have been monitoring traffic to popular beach spots along that North Shore coast and uh, this is what he's found so far
7: We found that Ka'e has been more trafficked and more visited by local people than ever. And Blackpot, those two beaches were just catching cracks with local people. Like, it's packed every day down there, and there's no visitors. I mean, there is now, but for the first couple months there, it was just everybody that's not working, going down the beach.
4: And that unemployment, you know, that Kaua'i isn't immune to, is not immune to, uh, financial impact of COVID. And uh, Guy says he's in Hanalei, where he works, he's seen a number of businesses sort of struggling to adapt to these new conditions, you know, where you don't have uh, out of state travel, you do not have uh, tourists. And so that's really sparking a debate, not just in Kauai, I think, but statewide, about what to do next with our, with our economy and with our businesses.
7: You know, it's like, we should have known better. We shouldn't have put everything into the visitor industry basket. And if we did, then you better be ready for this kind of stuff. And there's kind of that debate right now where you're like, you want to do everything you can to help them because it's all your brothers and sisters working in these stores. But, you know, and then what, hold on for dear life until the tourists come back? Like, maybe we should try a different model a little bit.
4: He had an interesting uh, take, actually. So a spa in Honolulu had closed down recently because of COVID. And uh, he and a few of his colleagues have actually taken over that space and they're going to turn it into a space for um, with Internet. Right. High speed Internet for folks who might not have it on that coast. Uh, rooms for doing, you know, with computers to do Zoom conferences, little rooms to, to um, pretty much bring people up and out of COVID, of the, uh, at least the financial part of things, um, But while also utilizing that space that was left because of a shop, you know, packing up shop.
0: Right. Yeah. So I know these times are really kind of challenging our innovation. Like (laughs) what else can we do to make some money and what else can we do to create to you
4: know either protect barriers where you're you know you're going camping or right. whatever you know. It's a, that new normal that everybody's uh, talking about and I think uh, for the folks that I've spoken to there's still a lot of uncertainty um, but I think you'll see in the future in the next couple of weeks you'll really see a lot of uh, innovative or creative approaches perhaps coming out of Kauai. I, I've seen I've that's how I've looked at uh, what's been done so far is you really hear these new ideas, like pa- partnering with the with the uh, short-term rental platforms to get enforcement done, right? They added an extra layer of screening by having a checkpoint at the Lihue Airport beyond what was being done by the state. So things like that, I, I see that coming out of Kauai, and I think we're going to see a lot more as we continue to have conversations about reopening.
0: I talked to someone who said that uh, uh, their client's online business uh, was was up because while people couldn't travel to Hawaii, they still wanted their fix of
4: coffee and nuts. And I don't know, is Kauai uh. Coffee doing well? I, mean, you know, I just kind of wonder about that. Right. I, I haven't spoken to Kauai Coffee uh, specifically, but I did check in with some of the uh, business uh, owners and uh, tour operators, actually, who had seen a slight spike in uh, Inter-Island, you know, neighbor islanders coming over and wanting to spend and, and support local as much as they could, Staycation. but it's nowhere near a uh, pre-COVID level. So we'll see. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much for the story. Mahalo. That was
0: HBR's Kuve Hirishi talking about garden island issues. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs>
1: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Learn seven ways to save water
7: at BoardOfWaterSupply.com. They say classical music has the power to heal, to boost creativity, or make you more productive. Some even think it makes you smarter. One thing's for certain, classical music makes you feel good, and it's waiting for you on HPR2, your home for classical music. Catch performances right here in the islands and from around the world. Tune in on your radio, our mobile app, or on your smart speaker. On the next Fresh Air, the legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. We talk with Robert P. Jones, author of the new
5: book, White Too Long. His main focus is on the Southern Baptist Church, the denomination in which he grew up, which justified slavery and supported the Confederacy. Jones founded the Public Religion Research Institute. Join us.
4: Fresh air starting this afternoon at 3, following On Point.
0: Hi, I'm Erin Lau from the Ohina Film Showcase. You're tuned in to Hawaii Public Radio. Find our stories on Twitter or tweet us at HIConversation. Thank you. You know, for the 50th anniversary of Earth Day earlier this year, we spotlighted A Climate for Change. It was the first of three documentaries produced by Green Island Films. Part two rolls out tonight on KGB at 7. Take a listen to this segment about one of uh, Hawaii seabirds, the Laysan albatross.
7: So mid November, they start showing up. Generally, the males show up first and then the females show up a little couple days later. They reconnect, they mate for life. <laughs> Socialize, then they ping, and then they snuggle, and then they mate. The female lays her egg. The next morning she gets up, she starts pulling the pine needles that are on this hillside below the ironwoods into a big mound. She's a nest in the ground for the next six months. Should we come from this side? Is It's it...
6: better to come from this side though, but there's a nene, yeah, nene nesting
4: right uh, here. I'll,
7: I'll try to avoid the nene then. Yeah, there are two eggs. That one's not fertile, okay? So just keep that one, I'll get you the other one. Let's just, I'll get the, I'll get both of them.
0: You know, that film also covers efforts to protect our coral reefs. Filmmaker Anthony Alto dedicated the film to the coral research of the late Ruth Gates, who is the director of the Institute for, of Marine Biology at Coconut Island.
5: Ruth Gates was, was a superstar in the academic world. And she, you know, it's very difficult to make people care about corals. I mean. We care about them more here in Hawaii probably than just about everywhere else, and that's because we're, our culture is so tied into it, and you know surfing and what have you. But for most people, coral is seems inanimate. They, they, a lot of people actually don't even know that it's alive, and so it's very difficult to attract funding. It's it's not like a, a, an elephant or a rhinoceros or one of the megafauna that people can look at or a polar bear, and they go, "Oh, Ruth was very good at bringing attention." and bringing money to research on corals. I mean, she was just an extraordinary character, and um, she she discovered that she had a, a brain tumor, and she was gone within within less than a year, and it was, it, it was a tragedy that was felt, there were reverberations felt throughout the academic world, uh, a great loss to the world and a great loss to Hawaii.
0: And you dedicated this film to her, and you start out the film talking about uh, the state of our coral reefs there, uh, off Coconut Island.
5: That's right. And, you know, we thought we would be focusing on Ruth's research, but we found out about the work that was, is being done at the Coral Nursery, which is a, a division of the, uh, the State Department of Land and Natural Resources. And they didn't so much adopt a, an academic research approach as they, they approached it from the point of view almost as professional aquarium specialists. And they developed techniques for, for feeding and caring for coral. And what they found is they can it, they can accelerate the growth of coral by, by something like 20 times. A coral that would take 20 years to grow in the ocean, they can grow in a year in the, in the, in the nursery. And obviously this holds out great hope for the future that we may be able to restore our reefs when, when you know, as we're suffering the depredations of coral bleaching, which we are increasingly every year. We've already lost 30% of our reefs here in Hawaii. This holds out some real hope. Obviously, that hope has got to be built on a foundation of we're going to do everything we can to stop our planet heating. And we're nowhere near that point at the moment. And what I'm trying to do with these films is come up with a mixture of of items to give people hope. Because most of the time when you talk about climate change, to people who aren't deeply involved in it, they, they become very quickly overwhelmed and very depressed. It looks like such an enormous problem. That they literally just don't want to hear anymore that you, you turn them off by telling them how bad things are and so crucially in this mix i think you have to have some elements of hope and and this program at the coral um restoration uh, nursery that, that the DLNR is running is a great program and it's not the only one i mean we also looked at another program on uh, to do with albatross so in the in the first episode the, the, fo- the focus is on the impacts today of climate change in hawaii that looked at, at people. This family of native Hawaiians who've lived in the same location for 14 generations, but are probably unable to continue to do so for much longer because it's raining so much more than it used to. Their river is flooding so much more than, than it did that they may no longer be able to leave, live there. So this time we thought, okay, we've looked at what it does to people. Let's look at, uh, at what it does to, to other species. So we looked at the corals. And then we looked at albatross, and the, the reality with albatross is that they're losing their habitat up in the northwestern Hawaiian islands because of sea level rise. And so there is this program of Kauai to to move eggs from the Pacific Missile Range Facility where the, the albatross are endangered because of bird strikes with the uh, aircraft taking off and landing. They're taking those, but those eggs, and they can check and see if they're fertile, and if they are, they're moving this to, to a new location up on the north shore of Hawaii, which is um, well above any potential future sea level rise, and they've been successful in establishing a colony there. So that's another great story, uh, uh, another great piece of news. But when we, when we we as we're covering this, we, we're interviewing the guy, the researcher Eric Landerworth, who's in charge of this, and he's saying, look, if we're doing this because we're worried about the habitat of the albatross in Hawaiian islands, then maybe we should be paying attention. They're like a canary in a coal mine. They're a warning of what, if this is happening to them, it could be happening to us sometime in the future. So even the optimistic, the hopeful messages, they are hopeful, but they do contain an underlying message, an underlying warning. And from that, uh, if you like, I guess we, we, we then start to look at what I think of as some of the darker stuff. Two things in particular in this episode, which is one is plastics, uh, and the other is waste. And the reason we look at plastics is because there's been a lot of pushback on the effort to cut back on single-use plastics. There's a lot of mockery about wealthy, well-to-do middle-class people saying no to a plastic straw as if that's going to change the world. And I I felt the need to push back on that because 40% of all plastics are single-use. So if we were to... Uh, get rid of single-use plastics, it would have a huge impact. And plastics themselves have a huge impact on the environment. They release millions of tons of uh, greenhouse gases every year just in their manufacture, and they continue to produce those gases. They off-gas those emissions throughout their lives, long after we finish using them, when they're floating around in the air or or strewn on a beach or in the water. They're still producing methane and CO2 that's being emitted into the atmosphere. And the plastics industry, the oil industry, most people don't understand, 99% of plastics is oil, coal, and gas. And even if you were able to produce plastics 100% with clean energy, you would still only cut their carbon footprint in half. And less than 10% of all plastics ever produced have ever been recycled. And the impact on people's health of these things getting into our systems, which is happening increasingly, It's just extraordinary. So the idea that saying no to a plastic straw is laughable is nonsense. It's actually vital. And for a lot of people, saying no to a plastic straw is the first step in becoming part of that global movement that is saying to those in power, both in corporate power and political power, enough. We have to change.
0: It's interesting yeah. because during these covid times with everybody focused on going back to school while there may be plans to move to reusable utensils in schools many schools are just keeping to using the plastic forks and and knives and spoons and it it is creating a lot more waste.
5: We're living through a time where we're seeing, you know, conundrums all over the place. I mean, it is also true that, that that the pandemic has resulted in a, in, in a huge net decrease in global emissions, temporarily at least. But it, it, it's provided a pause, and everybody's seen the impact of the pause. You know, there are, there are people in New Delhi in India who are seeing a blue sky above their heads for the first time in their lives. Uh, and the same is true in metropolises all across the world, from Los Angeles to you, you name it. So we can see the benefits as well as seeing some of the potential problems. I'm not particularly worried about that specific example we mentioned, because it just so happens that the... The Food Services Division of the the, the State Department of Education is an extremely progressive organization that is very much trying to to tackle these issues. They did away with all styrofoam containers containers more than a year ago at the stroke of a pen. They didn't wait for any legislation. The head of the department there, Albert Scales, got an email from a student one day saying, how come you're still using styrofoam containers in school cafeteria? And he said, you know what, I'd never thought about it before. But as soon as I saw saw that, I thought, that kid is right. And he just signed an order, no more styrofoam. So even if they're forced on a temporary basis to bring back um, disposable utensils, I'm sure that's not going to last for long. Nobody's saying that we have to do away with all plastics. And obviously the medical use is one area where where they are, at least at the moment, pretty much essential. But, I mean, let's start with the stuff where we can have some influence. And 40%, as I said, 40% of plastics are single-use, mainly used in packaging. And most of the corporates involved in this have pushed back against efforts to get them to move to to eco-packaging because they say that consumers won't pay the price. So that's absolutely something within our control. We are not yet exploiting our power as consumers. Seventy percent of the economy is based on consumer spending. And in this episode, one of the people we talked to is an academic, Peter Victor, who for has devoted his entire career to, to, to researching whether it's possible to have prosperity without economic growth, because clearly we cannot continue to have this uncontrolled economic growth and exploitation of Earth's resources, because there aren't enough resources. If everybody lived the way we did, we'd need five planet Earth. Everybody knows this at this point. And the rest of the world is trying to catch up to our standard of living. And they have a right to. We can't say no to them. So clearly we have an obligation to show them a model of a sustainable standard of living.
0: That film debuts tonight on KGMB and will run several times through August. The third installment of the environmental uh, films will focus on food and agriculture. Alto hopes to resume filming in our schools for the final in the series later this fall. That is it for today. Up tomorrow, a show about quarantine breakers. It's a rebroadcast featuring State Attorney General Claire Connors, Deputy Police Chief John McCarthy, and Hawaii quarantine kapu breakers Angela Keene. Give us some feedback back about the quarantine and anything else. You know, how you doing on masks? Call our talk back line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.